Isn't it funny how two people can hear the exact same phrase, but hear it completely different from each other? Just polar opposite ways of hearing the exact same phrase. For instance, the classic statement that says, the mother-in-law is coming this weekend. And so one person in the household, maybe the grandkids go, yay, grandma's coming to visit. And then there's somebody else in the household who goes, oh, grandma's coming to visit. Or on a more serious note, uh, the phrase it says uh, to a 28-year-old girl that wants to start a family, and the doctor says, you're pregnant. And that would be full of happy tears in that type of situation. But that exact same phrase, you're pregnant, said to a 14-year-old girl or a 44-year-old lady, is not happy tears. It would be disastrous for them. Or if a lawyer walked up to you and said, you've just inherited $500. Most of us in this room would go, yay, $500, that'd be great. But if you're the son or the daughter of a multimillionaire, and you're anticipating receiving an inheritance of $250,000, for the lawyer to say $500 inheritance to you, be like a slap in the face. Or if you're in a car and the driver notices a sign that says, oh, 20 more miles to the, to the next rest stop. And most people in the car go, oh, good, 20 more miles to the next rest stop. But if you happen to be the person in the car that needs to go to the bathroom right now, that 20 more miles to the next rest stop would just be terrifying to you. You say, well, why are you talking about this? What, what's this really about? Well, this past fall, I had issued a bit of a challenge that if anybody wanted to join Hal and I, we were going to read through a significant portion of the New Testament. Uh, we were reading through the New Testament, some of the Old Testament, and we happened to be in the book of Daniel at this particular evening when we were sitting at the table. And Helen was reading, and as she was reading, she read a particular phrase out of Daniel chapter 5. And as she read it, I remember thinking, boy, you, you could interpret that phrase too vastly different ways. So let me set the context a little bit. Most of you would know that Daniel, as a young lad, had been taken as a prisoner of war by the Babylonians, and so he'd left Israel and been taken captive in, into Babylon, and he gets to this country where he knows nobody, doesn't know the language, certainly doesn't know the culture or anything, but the favor of God was on him, and so he begins to rise to the rank and files of the nobility of, of the Babylonians, and eventually things turn out not too bad for Daniel. But the king that had taken him into exile had been Nebuchadnezzar. At this point in Daniel chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar, that first monarch, has now died. And his grandson, Belshazzar, is now the reigning monarch in Babylon. And he does not know Daniel. So one other thing that was going on at this particular time is that the, the nation of Babylon was under siege. The Medes and the Persians, the surrounding nations, were invading Babylon and trying to conquer it. And they conquered right up to the capital city. As a matter of fact, the capital city of Babylon was in, totally encompassed by the invading armies. And so for some unexplainable reason, Belshazzar decides, in the middle of this terrifying war that's going on, he decides to throw a party. And the scripture is very clear. He invited like a thousand of the nobility, a thousand of the military uh, officers to come to this bash out party that's taking place in the, in the palace. And the, there's lots of drinking going on, lots of music that's going on. Meanwhile, outside the walls, the Medes and the Persians are trying to break through and to, and to conquer the city. And partway through the evening, 
he does something else that's kind of inexplicable. He decides that he's going to remember that there's wasn't when we ca- captured the, the people of, of Israel. Didn't we take a bunch of the, of the sacred items from their temple? And wasn't there some golden goblets and some silver goblets that was in the temple? Go find those things and bring them to the party and, and let's pour alcohol and let's toast our gods. And so the servant runs off and finds the, the golden goblets that had been dedicated exclusively for the worship of Yahweh God. And they're brought into the, into the palace and people are pouring the alcohol and they're toasting and they're saluting. They're, they're having this drunken thing that's going on. And all of a sudden, in Daniel chapter 5, something unbelievable happens. In a moment, these thousands of people look and there is this hand from heaven. And the finger of God writes four words onto the very plaster of the wall of the palace. Now, this is not a dream. This is not a vision. This is not a drunken stupor. A thousand people saw exactly what happened. And the scripture is really clear that Belshazzar is just trembling. He sees the things. He knows that this is not just a dream or something. This was a reality. And he's looking. He does not know what these words mean that are written onto the wall. He's trembling. The Bible says he turned pale. He almost fell down because his knees were trembling so much. So he calls for the enchanters and all the wise people in Babylon. Come and interpret what these four words mean that are written onto the wall. And nobody can explain what these words mean. But the king's grandmother, Nebuchadnezzar's wife, so the grandmother of Belshazzar, she hears this commotion that's going on in the palace, and she comes in, and she says, what's going on? And all of a sudden, she sees this thing that's been written onto the wall. And Belshazzar says, nobody can interpret what's just been etched into the wall of the palace. And his grandmother says, there is a man in Babylon that can interpret those words. His name is Daniel. He, he has the spirit of the gods on him. Your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, knew him and highly respected him. You call for Daniel. He'll be able to read those words that are written on the wall. And so word goes out. They find Daniel. This is years after he's been taken captive. He's now a man someplace around the age of 80. And he comes into the room. And King Belshazzar says, if you can read those words, I will clothe you in purple. I'll make you like the the third most important person in all the nation. And Daniel says, I don't want any of that kind of stuff. And Daniel begins, before he interprets the four words that are up on the wall, he begins to recite a little bit of the history of what happened under Nebuchadnezzar. And as he's telling the story of Nebuchadnezzar, and he's coming up to read these words that are on the wall, these are the words that Daniel said to King Belshazzar. Daniel chapter 5, beginning verse 22. But you, Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You have had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not, and here's that phrase that when I heard Helen read it, I thought you could interpret this two vastly different ways. Daniel said, you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all of your ways. And in that moment, that phrase, God holds your life in his hands and all of your ways. Belshazzar heard that phrase as an ominous threat. 
Belshazzar interpreted that phrase, that God holds my life in his hands in all my ways. He heard it this way. God has the right and the ability to squash you like a bug. You are way, way out of line. Now this concept of somebody holding somebody else's life in their hands was a concept that Belshazzar was very familiar with. As a matter of fact, Daniel had actually referenced something about his grandfather when he said, you remember your grandfather. And if your grandfather wanted to kill somebody, he killed him. If he wanted to promote somebody, he promoted him. If he wanted to do something nice for somebody or if he wanted to humble somebody, a person's life was in the hands of the king. The king had the right and the ability to do with the person anything that they wanted to do. And Belshazzar knew he had offended. He had ridiculed and mocked. He got on the wrong side of the king of the universe. He understood that phrase. God holds your life in his hands and all of your ways as an ominous threat. So what I did as I was preparing for this sermon, I went back and I read everything in Scripture that I could find about Belshazzar. And I looked up every Bible passage, anything that had a comment about who he was and what he was like. And these are the words that I wrote down that were descriptive of what Belshazzar was like. He was arrogant. He misused power and position. He was proud. He was a drunk. He was irresponsible. He was sacrilegious. He desecrated what should have been treated with reverence. He was careless, disobedient, self-confident, mocking, presumptuous, unwilling to learn. He presumed upon God's mercy. This phrase, the hand of God, I'm a bit surprised. I had never done a study into what the Bible actually says about the hand of God. And there are dozens and dozens of references in the Bible to the hand of God. For instance, the story of when the Jewish people are coming out of Egypt and heading towards the promised land. And you remember, they got to the Red Sea and the the ocean was in front of them. And the scripture says that God parted the ocean with his hand. And then the story where the Philistines had taken the Ark of the Covenant and they had brought it into the temple of their God. And the next morning, the the statue to their temple had fallen down, to their God had fallen down. And so they set it back up again. And the next morning they came back and it had fallen down again, prostrate in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And the scripture says that the hand of God was against the people of that community and they broke out in tumors and died. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Silas are preaching. And as they're preaching, there's this sorcerer who begins to mock and to ridicule them and to to try and confuse people from hearing the message. And finally, Paul's headed up to here and he swings around and he looks at this person. He says, the hand of God is against you. And just like that, that sorcerer went blind. So frequent are the references to the hand of God in Scripture that a Latin phrase was developed. Dextra Domini. The right hand, the strong hand of God. It's a metaphor. It's used illustrative to talk about the omnipotence of God, that when God decides to act, nobody can oppose him. 
I was looking perhaps at another passage that, that I should have understood better than I had before I was actually studying for this sermon. The, the, the passage in Jeremiah where it talks about that God is the potter and we're the clay. And where it talks about the clay cannot say to the potter's hand, how are you making me? I had always interpreted that passage in a positive way that God forms us and makes us into whatever he wants us to make, to be like. But interestingly, that passage in Jeremiah is not positive. It's talking about the, in the potter's hands, the piece of clay. The, the potter can do anything with that clay that he wants to. If he wants to crumble it up and throw it away, he has every right to do that. In Job, it says, pity the person who falls into the hands of God. And perhaps one of the best-known sermons ever preached, other than the, the Sermon on the Mount, was Jonathan Edwards' sermon in the 1700s, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And so when Belshazzar hears Daniel say, God holds your life and all of your ways in his hands, he hears that as an ominous threat. But I started this message saying, isn't it interesting how the same phrase can be heard and interpreted two different ways? Because there was somebody else that was there that day. When that phrase, God holds your life and all of your ways in his hands, the other person that was there was Daniel. And when Daniel hears this phrase about God holds my life in his hands, he does not hear it as an ominous threat. He hears it as a comforting, assuring promise of God. See, Daniel's lived experience was very different than Belshazzar. You remember when Daniel first got into, into Babylon, he was just a, probably like a 12 or 13-year-old young lad. He's far from home. He's never going home again, does not know the language, doesn't know the culture, doesn't know anything. It would be something like if a war ever broke out between North Korea and Canada or the United States and your 13-year-old son was taken captive to North Korea, does not know the language, does not know the culture. It's, it's an enemy state. That was Daniel's lived experience. But when he gets to Babylon, the scripture in Daniel chapter 1 says very clearly that the favor of God was on him. And God caused people that were round about him to, to look on him with favor. And he began to have opportunities and doors of opportunity open up for him. And he began rising through the rank and file of the nobility of the nation. And actually ended up having not too bad of a life. And then... When the tide of popular opinion turned against him and some people really wanted to do away with Daniel. And you remember the story of the lion's den and how they threw him into the lion's den. And what does the scripture say? It says that God sent an angel and shut the mouths of the lions so they did not harm him. While it's true that most of the references in the, in the Bible about the hand of God are fearful references... There are a number of references in Scripture where the hand of God is not meant to, to, to bring terror to people or fear. The hand of God is representative of something that's, that's comforting. For instance, the passage in, in John's Gospel where Jesus says, No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. The hands of God that hold us like this, it's like God is saying, I've got your back. You're secure right here. I love you so much. I have engraved your name onto my hands. 
This Christmas season, we had uh, my youngest daughter visiting with her husband and, and two kids. We've got a, a two-year-old and a four-year-old, a grandchildren from Ontario that were visiting with us. And one day, we were sitting at the supper table, and I don't know why I had never noticed this before, but my son-in-law was sitting right beside me, right to this side here. And as I looked over, I noticed something I hadn't noticed before, that he had actually taken and tattooed the names of his children right onto his wrist. So precious are his children to him. Their names are right there. And God says, I love you so much. I hold you. Nobody can snatch you from my hands. I've engraved your names onto my hands. And in the book of Job, sorry, Ezra, these words are found. The good hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. Daniel's lived experience with the hands of God were comforting and assuring that even when he was far from home, did not know anybody, he's in an enemy state, he's being held by the hands of God. So here we've got Belshazzar, who hears this, the hands of God hold my life, hears it as an ominous threat, and here's Daniel, that hears the phrase, my life and all my ways are held by God, in God's hands. And so I did the same thing that I did for Belshazzar that I did for Daniel. I looked up every reference in the Bible that talked about Daniel. And these were the descriptive phrases that I found about Daniel. He was reverent. He was spirit-filled, smart, wise, spiritually gifted. He was not motivated by power, position, or prestige, or wealth. He was God-fearing. He was a praying man. He was gentle. He was mindful of where he came from. He was a worshiper. He praised and thanked God. He was not corruptible. He would not take bribes. He was self-deprecating. He was servant-hearted. He had an exalted view of God. He helped others. He was respectful. He fasted. And when he needed to, he was even repentant. So I ask you, is it possible for one set of hands to be both a threat and a comfort? Can a hand be both a threat and a comfort? And if you come from any kind of a functional household, I'm not talking about a dysfunctional, mean-spirited, bad household, but I'm talking if you grew up in a normal household, you already know the same hand can be both a comfort and a threat. I've made no secret of it over the years. I was not the easiest kid to raise in the neighborhood. I was a very mischievous person. I got into a ton of problems. I did all kinds of bad stuff. I, I stole a bike. I can remember stealing a chocolate bar. I remember stealing an underwater mask and breaking it. On one occasion, there was some broken shingles off of a roof and by, and I was throwing them like little Frisbees, and a lady was walking by, and I picked up a shingle, and I threw it at her, and it threw flew through the air, and it cut her right above her eye. It did not damage her eye, but it cut her right above her eye. Like, I, I was not a nice little kid. I ran away from home dozens and dozens of times. I broke so many rules in our household. I was mean and rude to my sister. I was not the easiest kid to raise in the neighborhood. And when I would get on the wrong side of my mom, my mom had a pink hairbrush. And she would come towards me and she would say, Stephen, hold out your hand. 
And I would hold up my little four and five and six-year-old hand like that, and she would grab onto my wrist, and she would take her little pink hairbrush, and she'd go, smack, 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 smack. You've got to learn not to be like that. And I don't mind telling you, I cried. There's lots of times when I cried when my mom spanked my hand. And I didn't like that little pink hairbrush that was in my mom's hand. Did I fear my mom's hand sometimes? Absolutely I did. But I'm here to tell you, my mom's hands were also a comfort. And when I smashed my two front teeth into a pole that was just up the street, and I ran home with the little pieces of my teeth in my hand, I didn't go to my dad, and I didn't go to my grandparents. I ran straight for my mom. And she got down on one knee, and she cried with me, and she held me. When I was just a little boy, and I'm talking about like little, little boy, I had serious lung problems and respiratory problems. And so for the first few years of my life, I lived inside of like an oxygen steam tent type of a thing. And I can remember it was like wax paper that was over top of me and it was like domed in. But I remember this, and I don't remember a lot, but I remember this. I can remember my mom reaching through and I remember her just rubbing my back, scratching my little back. And there would be times where I'd be brokenhearted. Maybe I was being bullied about something or maybe some girl had broke my heart or something. And I remember my mom, she would come and she would take the cool face cloth and pat my forehead to get the fever down. She would wipe away the tears. Sometimes she would sit in the corner of my bed and, and I would be just restless. And I can remember my mom just rubbing my back until I could fall asleep. Can the same set of hands be both a threat and a comfort? Obviously it can. So when I say to you, your life and all of your ways are in God's hands, how do you hear that? The more your life looks like Belshazzar, where there's an arrogance to you, there's a lack of reverence, there's this independent disrespect, selfishness about you. When I say your life is in God's hands, he has the right and the ability to do with you anything that he wants. You rightfully should hear it as an ominous threat. But if your life is like Daniel's, and you're trying to live a, a God-fearing, humble life, a life of faith, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are of life around you. You could be like Daniel in a far off place. Life is chaotic. It's very uncertain. But as I say to you this morning, your life is in God's hands and all of your ways. Like Daniel, you can hear it as a comforting, assuring promise. The day that I'm, I'm preaching this message for uh, this video... Uh, yesterday, I was in a conversation with somebody, and uh, we got talking about the hands of God, and, and I was talking to a guy, he was a, a truck driver, he's an 18-wheeler truck driver, and we were talking about the hands of God, and, and he said something to me, he says, I'm going to tell you something I've never told anybody, and I said, okay, he said, I've seen the hand of God, I said, really? He said, yeah, he said, I've never told anybody this, I've never even told my wife this. He says, I was driving one night. He says, I came over the crest of a hill. And he says, I looked towards the bottom of the hill, and it was in the wintertime, and there was an accident. And he says, I was driving a bit too fast. And he said, I knew there was no way in the world 
I could get stopped before crashing into these cars at the bottom of the hill. He says, I cried out. He said, I don't mind saying, I cried out to God, God, help me, help me, help me. And he said, I saw the hand of God come onto the front of my truck to slow me up, to keep me from making that accident any worse than the way it was in front of me. There is a comforting reality to the presence of God. To know that I'm held in his hands. He loves me so much he engraves me. The good hand of God is for us when we trust him. So I don't know who this message is for today. Somebody out there, you may need to know your life is in God's hands. And you're on the wrong side of God right now. You've insulted and mocked God with the way you've been living. And you need to hear it as an ominous threat. But here's the good news. Nebuchadnezzar, the grandfather of King Belshazzar, he messed up on God. And God gave him time to repent and to humble himself before God and get his life together. For others that are watching this, life is out of control. You don't know what's happening around you. Life is very chaotic. And if you're a person that's person of faith. There's a humility to you. You're living a God-fearing life. You need to know God's got you. So the verse, God, who holds in his hands your life and all of your ways.